1: welcome to 101.9 1.9 fn it's just gone five minutes past 12. thank you so much for joining us and on the line with us is darby roach chief economist at the efficient group darby welcome back to kai
0: thank you very much for asking me good afternoon to you
1: good i need to ask you where are you i am
0: in a rural area somewhere in the free state it's very cold it's a small town, it's called Edenburg. Oh. So I'm standing outside the golf The golf club. <laughs>
1: <laughs> fantastic. Well, if that's the case, thank you so much for taking out of your leisure time to spend that's, some time it's, with it's us. Not,
0: it's not leisure time, Harvey. I just want to tell you it's not leisure time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, fantastic. Davi, the bottom line is that when we spoke at the beginning of last year before COVID came, we were really quite pessimistic that the economy wouldn't survive it seemed to have got through the um, pandemic, you know, pretty all right, far better than I think we expected it to. And now we're seeing the inflation cycle starting to kicking and interest rates starting to go up. The interest rate um, hike that we had yesterday or the day before of 75 basis points, do you believe that was a justified increase or was it too sharp?
0: No, no, no. I think it I think the Reserve Bank acted quite boldly. I think it was a brave move by the South African Central Bank. Inflation is a real big trouble or problem. Inflation is devastating to economic activity. And uh, I was actually very pleasantly surprised to see the Reserve Bank increasing interest rates by 75 bps. And I think they will continue with this. And I think the next move is probably going to be in a region of 75 bps of maybe 100 bps or so. And thereafter, expect another increase. So no, I think the Reserve Bank has done the right thing. Remember, inflation is never an event. It's not. We don't. We have inflation not because the petrol price has gone up. We have inflation because it's becoming a process. And the only way that we can stop this process, or at least the way that the Reserve Bank can stop this process, is by making money more expensive by increasing interest rates, and uh, to stop this process, which is will be devastating to the South African economy. Maybe I can just add. There are many other things that can be done uh, to get eco- to get inflation lower. But those things are economically quite difficult to do. Those things will include things like, for example, not giving ESCOM these massive increases or increasing the wages of civil servants by as much as they're demanding. In short, creating a more competitive environment. Those are the kind of things that are preferred to rising interest rates. But since those things are politically difficult to do, interest rates is the only alternative that we have. So congratulations to the Reserve Bank, right move.
1: Darby, on that note, um, there are certain of what we call exo- exogenous um, events, certain things that happen outside of the scope of control. Has corruption, especially in a institution like ESCOM, become one of those events where we actually can't control it, pushing prices up, pushing efficiency down because of blackouts, and therefore it's going to be with us for a while.
0: Yes, I'm afraid you're absolutely right. It is because of factors like, for example, Eskom and many other things, which makes it difficult for, for, for well, uh, for, for, it makes it more possible for the inflation process to to be maintained. You mentioned external factors, you know, and I thought initially when you mentioned that you're going to say ask me. So the increase in international oil prices, the reason that we have inflation, and what's the increase in interest rates going to? How, is that going to be successful in pushing down the international oil price? And the answer to that is obviously no. But that's not the reason why the Reserve Bank is increasing interest rates. Not to push the international oil price down, but to prevent this from becoming a process, but you're absolutely right. There are certain animals are more equal than other animals, and some of those animals are Eskom that can increase prices more than you and I, and they are basically protected. And the same goes to civil servants. I mean, Eskom workers just got a seven percent increase. That's that's ludicrous. Oh, uh, how uh, on b- what basis could they get the seven percent increase because they're threatening to burn the place down? That is that's not the way to do business.
1: Darby, so on that note, let's take a quick ad break, let's run to the shops quickly. We'll be back with you in a moment.
0: This is RV on Business.
1: Welcome back to 101.9. Hi, FM. On the line with us, Darby Root is the Chief Economist at the Efficient Group. Darby, once again, thank you so much for your time. Just let's let's go look at, you know, go back to the petrol price. The petrol price, is that not really also very much linked into the weakness of the RAND that we're experiencing at the moment?
0: Well, actually, the rand is not that weak. Well, let me rephrase that: the rand is always a weak currency. Uh, it's always undervalued to some degree, but currently, the rand is actually behaving quite nicely. And part of the reason for that has to do with. I think there are two main reasons for that. The one is is the fact that the Reserve Bank recently started increasing interest rates and is likely to continue to do that, and that usually supports your currency, which is happening at the moment. Uh, and then there's a second reason why we see the rand that is actually there relatively strong, and that has to do with the commodity cycle. Now, we all complain about the high international oil price which is bad for South Africa, it's adding to the increase in the petrol price and all of that but the high commodity cycle is also good for South Africa, palladium prices and platinum prices and coal prices all those prices are, are are very high as well, resulting in us exporting more than what we are actually importing, so be careful what you wish for, if you wish for lower commodity prices, that will eventually lead to less exports for South Africa as well and that may actually lead to a current account deficit which will be bad for the exchange rate for of the of the currency. So, in a in a funny kind of way, the high commodity prices, the high oil prices, are certainly good for us. But the high commodity prices is generally not too bad for South Africa, and that actually supports the exchange rate of the currency now because we're running a current account surplus.
1: You now, Darby, that's how I wanted to get to a little bit later, just to talk about. If you just look on the markets at the moment, the platinum miners um, already seem to be on a on, on a good wicket at the moment. There seems to be a lot of buoyancy there. Darby, coming back to it, I saw in the Financial Mail, uh, I think two days ago, a a really nice article about Northern Platinum, where um, they seem to be one of the platinum miners that really seem to be getting traction. And the share really seems to be not be the darling of the market. It's not one of those that you see all the time. Have you got any comments on that particular share?
0: No, Are we, please don't ask me about specific stocks because that's not my expertise. I'm a macroeconomist. Right. I, I will get you my team to try to answer that, but that's no, not my expertise. No,
1: fair enough. No, but I just saw it come through now as, yeah. as a question. Let's go back to the macroeconomics. A few weeks ago, we were really concerned about the, the Russian war in Ukraine, something that we all were discussing. If you go to CNN today, it doesn't even make the headlines anymore. But we know that the war is, is raging we know that Ukraine's major export is wheat. They made a deal with Russia trying to sort of keep it. Yeah. Russia then went and bombed Odessa the very next day. Is this war a real effect? Does it have a real effect on macroeconomics in the world?
0: Yeah. Or? yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was I was lucky. I was in Russia about uh, six weeks ago or so so and I spoke to ordinary Russians and I looked at the economy and see what the impact of sanctions is on the Russian economy and I can tell you I couldn't see well I couldn't see any sign of a war in Russia itself people are going along with their business as usual there are no signs of any kind of form of economic hardship so I'm sure that the sanctions will have an impact on the Russian economy but, but the Russian economy without a doubt is not in free fall having said that, I'm also pretty sure that the Russians will keep at least the eastern part of the Ukraine and Krim. I know the, the Western will uh, press calls it Crimea, but the Russians call it Krim. So the Krim part and the Donbas area, the Russians will will, will, will keep that. I think they'll try to make it part of Russia as well. I expect some referendum soon uh, on whether they want to join uh, Russia and so on. So that is uh, pretty much a given. I also think, if that is the most likely scenario, that we will see a low intensity, intensity Civil war kind of thing going on for many many years, so I suspect that this war will go on for a long time, and it it has two major consequences, many more, but two major ones. The one is commodity prices on our side, like we've just discussed, but another one is that food prices, especially grain prices, uh, is uh, very very high at the moment, and uh, I don't want to make predictions like this, but I am afraid that the world is is at the at the at the at the edge of a serious starvation. Many countries are going to experience hunger, real serious hunger. I think we're going to talk about many people that are going to die of hunger. Places like Somalia already. Places like Chad. Places, even places like, for example, Syria, Sri Lanka, Morocco. Those are all countries that are already experiencing serious food shortages. Um, and that is uh, uh, largely because of the war in Ukraine and largely because the, the grain cannot be exported from those countries, from the Ukraine. And it's not only that, many other countries are also preventing, even preventing grain to be exported. A major grain producer is India and they recently stopped the export of grain from India, which I think is a wrong thing to do. But all these factors coming together, I am very concerned about the, about the global famine especially in countries uh, and regions like Sub-Saharan Africa, but not only Sub-Saharan Africa. Like I've said, Southeast Asia, there are a couple of countries, and in Central and the Middle East as well, a couple of countries that are certainly experiencing a shortage of food already. We're going to see more of this.
1: Darby, on that note, when it comes to Russia itself, you know, at the end of the day, no one lives forever, and Putin is there right now, very firmly in control, and he has been, but we've seen more powerful leaders fall. If Putin had to fall... What are the scenario planners saying that the effect would be on the world economy?
0: You know, I've been trying to sort of figure out what the scenarios, political scenarios, could be from Russia. Now, like I've said, the most likely scenario is for for Russia to take over the eastern part of the Ukraine. And I've spoken to many Russians, and the, the majority of Russians will probably be in favor of that. So it doesn't matter who takes over from Putin that I don't think the Russians are going to move out of the Ukraine completely. The Krim will be part from Russia. There's some historical context to that as well. And the Donbass area from now will be part of Russia and that's it. The, the, but there are some other scenarios. Uh, certainly there's a possibility that Putin can be can be kicked out somehow. There's talk that he could be sick and somebody could take over from him. But again, I don't think the Russians will move out from that, those areas in, in, the, in the Ukraine. What I'm concerned about is, a, is an accident of some sort. There could be an accident the, I know the Americans are sending serious weaponry to the Ukraine, and uh, accidents happen during times of war, and it is possible that NATO and Russia can eventually get into a war, and that can, that can eventually spill over into a world war, which may include even nuclear weapons. So those sort of things, without a doubt, is possible. But I would say the most likely scenario is, like I've said, keeping a part of the Ukraine, and I don't think the Russians will support Putin. Generally, the Russian population will support Putin or whoever to take over the rest of the Ukraine. And also, just keep in mind, there's a sliver of land called Transnistria between Moldova and the Ukraine, and the, the the ethnic composition is pretty much the same as in the Donbas area. And I won't be surprised if the Russians decide to take that as well, which will leave only a small piece of coastline uh, where Odessa is. That will give uh, the Ukraine access to the Black Sea, and while you've taken Transnistria, and uh, the Krim, why not take that part as well? So, so there is a possibility that Russia can expand it a little bit, and to 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 cut uh, the Ukraine off from the Black Sea completely, with all the consequences for grain exports and and all that. But at the moment, but I don't, know, I'm not sure about that. But for what I'm pretty sure now is that the, the Russians will keep at least the part that they've taken over already.
1: Fantastic. Darby, let's quickly run to the shops again. Let's take a pic at break. We'll be back with you in a moment.
0: This is RV on Business. Welcome
1: back to 101.9. We have Darby wrote on the line. Darby, coming back to you, thank you so much for hanging on the line. We were talking about there, about Russia and the Ukraine war. One thing that I think we've seen very, very clearly is that the world doesn't want another world war. And I almost feel in a in a strange way the west and nato specifically has thrown ukraine to the russians simply to avoid a war because if they, if nato got involved and really put their foot down and brought the collective power as they should be the russians wouldn't be able to advance or they would think about it but they're not prepared to do that have i read correctly into that or am i just being naive
0: I must be careful on what I what I what I'm going to how I'm going to answer that because you know I, what I try to do, I try to be objective. I try to be an analyst, uh, and I've got some personal connections with Russia. I just want to put that on the table. And like I've said, I've just been to Russia. I think uh, I think Putin made a huge mistake to invade or try to take over Kiev. At least that was a that was a major strategic blunder by Putin. But remember, there's a historic thing, yeah. There's a historic context that needs to be, and I'm not taking sides, please don't misunderstand me. But there is a historic context. The eastern part of the Donbas area are mostly Russian speaking, uh are, are Russian Orthodox um religion people from they, they they ethnic Russians. Unlike, and there's not much of a difference between an you know, Ukrainians and a Russians, but unlike the rest of the Ukraine of the Ukraine, the um the, the western part of the Ukraine are mostly Catholics, or some of them belong to the uh, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So, there are, and there's, there's a, another historic um, uh, uh, context that needs to be understood as well. And I know Putin has been talking about the denazification of the Ukraine. And the reality also is that many of the western Ukrainians supported Hitler during the Second World War. So, in <clears throat> none of this, gives you the right to invade another country but i just want to put it just to try to explain the context it is more than what we just it's not a simple conflict that we're talking about here and again i'm against wars having said that you know there's another there's another there's another another narrative that we have to be aware of and that's china's involvement in all of this now the world is getting polarized again We've got the West and we've got the East now. I think Putin thinks he's the leader of the East. Let's put it in simple terms: the East, <clears throat> and with his his his, um, his brother in arms, Xi Jinping from China. Although, but I think Xi Jinping sees this completely different. Xi Jinping, he wants he, he wants to see his legacy as leaving a united China which means that he must take over Taiwan eventually. So, you know, there are so, moving, so many moving parts in this whole conflict and everything that goes with that. You simply cannot give a simple answer to any one of these questions. But from, from a Western point of view, I don't think Russia is the real, the real enemy going forward. I think China is going to be a much, much bigger issue uh, eventually for, for the West. And also keep in mind, there are many territorial claims that China has over Russia. Now that sounds a little bit like the Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement during the Second World War, does it not? So there are, I mean, are, we're talking about so mo- many moving parts and moving parts within moving parts that this is, <laughs> this is quite a complex issue. And you simply cannot answer most of these questions by a yes or a no. But we can discuss it and we can, we can talk about it. And it's very, very interesting, at least.
1: Great. Darby, let's come back to Africa and let's come back to South Africa. Um, there's been a few questions that have come through about commodities. And um, two people here are asking basically the same thing. Has there been enough infrastructure investment in commodities, in mines, especially gold and platinum, over the last couple of years, especially during the 10 years that Jacob Zuma really destroyed the country, for the economy to keep up with international demand going forward?
0: No, no certainly not. But not only commodities and just about everything in South Africa. We just stopped investing in the country because we've lost confidence in a destructive government called the ANC government. Uh, and I know the president last night talked about uh, Eskom and deregulation of electricity and getting the private sector involved and all that. And, and don't think for one single moment that's the ANC uh, with a about turn in their, in their policies. That's certainly not the case. It's simply the ANC doing the last thing in the row because uh, because they've tried everything else. They've destroyed so many things in the country. They've destroyed the most important thing, and that's confidence in the country. They've destroyed ESCOM, and the only thing left now is to get the private sector to participate in electricity generation in South Africa. So the answer is no, we haven't invested nearly enough, and we couldn't invest more because we simply do not have the infrastructure. Even if we invested more in, in digging more mines and and producing more stuff in South Africa, we can't get it out because the railroads are dysfunctional. The harbours are just not working. So, uh, no, no, we haven't invested enough and we will not invest in in South Africa enough until we fix our political problems. We have have many economic problems, but that's a result of politics. So we need to fix politics first before we can really address our economic issues. You
1: know, Dob, you asked me not to talk about specific shares, but just to mention Tungela Resources, I saw a press release of them about two weeks ago that they they their mining operations of coal are going brilliantly they just can't yes. ship it out they just don't have enough trains to get the stuff out and the sad thing is that South Africa and for not for one second are we condoning the the, the evil of the apartheid regime but the infrastructure was a road rail shipping um electricity it was all there and it was functioning has it yep. just been allowed to go to, to decay or has the economy grown too quickly for the infrastructure?
0: No. Or- no, 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 no. No, what we had, we have we have a destructive government. We have a government that is simply living off the state. You know, uh, the, the, I know the ANC would like to portray themselves as a left-leaning socialist kind of government. they none of the sorts. There are some ideologues, like, for example, Praveen Gordon and Ibrahim Patel. They are real communists or socialists or whatever you want to call them. Uh, and, and I don't think I don't have any reason to think that they've had their, their fingers in a cookie jar. But, you know, there are so many of the other uh, leaders in the ANC, they're simply not interested. They're only interested in one thing, and that's personal enrichment for their cronies and for themselves. No, we, that, that is the reason. It has been destroyed by the ANC government. And in the meantime, many other countries are eating our lunch. And a very good example is Maputo. Maputo Harbour is working like clockwork, and they're taking over a lot of these exports because our own harbours and our rail rails have been destroyed by the ANC government.
1: Um, you've just opened a can of worms. This oh, obvious, obvious question that's just come up. Just simply, Darby, please let me know, do we need SAA or is the relic of the past?
0: No, the SAA is gone. But you know, in a weird kind of way, in a very ironic kind of way, the ANC government that is supposedly a left-leaning government, a socialist government, or maybe let's call them a communist-inspired government, you can pick any name you like that is left-leaning, uh, or socialist of nature, or communist of nature, that's what we have in, in, in the ANC government. But the real irony is this, this same left-leaning government has led to the privatization of just about everything in South Africa. Uh, the only difference is, I mean, even Margaret Thatcher couldn't do what they've achieved. They've privatized the South African Airways, basically, without getting money for it, because they've, they've basically privatized all the airlines in South Africa, all the the. the, the the industry in South Africa. The same is happening with the post office. Uh, The the post office has been running to the ground, operationally and financially, and the private sector is taking everything over because it's been privatized. It's exactly the same happening to ESCOM today, and in fact, we've even privatized the police. The police is so corrupt and incompetent that the private sector has got more than three times as many private sector security guards and police services. This this same left-leaning ANC government has privatized more things in South Africa than what Margaret Thatcher in the wildest dream could have dreamt to do.
1: You know, Darby, one thing I've said many, many times is that the South African people as a whole are the most resilient bunch you'll ever come across. Um, do you think we're looking at a, at, at a future in the next three, four, five years where every family will be independent from an electricity point of view from a water point of view, and basically be self-sufficient. So, you know, where before you never saw solar panels, when I come to your house, you're not going to show me your bucket, you're going to show me your pump system.
0: (laughs) That is happening, that is happening, but I don't think that's the right approach. Uh, And, you know, uh, well, this is bad for South Africa, but that's actually where the opportunities are. And uh, and, uh, there are so many business people that I know and that I do business with, and they're simply taking over these functions of the state. And that is really where the opportunities are. And There's a huge opportunity that just opened up now. And after the president's speech last night, it is very clear that power generation is going to be a big thing for the private sector. Go in there and generate, go and generate power and sell it to the grid and make money off that. The same as people doing things like putting solar panels on the roof and all that. But it doesn't mean we all have to go and create our own little island. Uh, it makes sense for some people to specialise in certain things, but in some instances, people should and are putting solar panels on the on the roof. But but we are a resilient bunch, and in a very in a very weird kind of way, a collapsing state is actually creating all these opportunities for a private sector.
1: Rebecca sends me here an SMS with a whole lot of emojis of someone crying. Please ask Darby what's going to happen with the petrol price. I simply cannot afford it. <laughs>
0: All right. Okay, the next move in the petrol price is going to be lower. The current overcollection on the petrol price is nearly two rand a litre. Uh, we have to claw back another 75 cents in the fuel levy. So unless the minister makes some sort of announcement that I'm not aware of yet, we're going to see a fall in the petrol price in the region of about one rand a litre. I suspect the oil price is going to be down to about $70 or so in a year's time. Depending what happens to the exchange rate of the rand, it's quite possible that we can see a petrol price Significantly lower than where it is today, in a couple of months' time or in a year's time or so. That's the most likely scenario. But next month, we're probably going to see a cut of about a rand a
1: litre. So, just a question for myself. Um, you know, at the moment, I'm living in Israel, and I'm just seeing a proliferation of hybrid cars and electric cars. Um, I was away at the beginning of last week, and in the resort that we were at, there were actually stations to pump your plug your electric car into. These huge incentives, the sector, etc. Where do you see South African going on the electric car
0: front? Yeah, we are we are very far behind the trend internationally. I like electric cars, but but remember, I don't like electric car necessarily because of the environmental credentials. I like it for other reasons. Although that is part of the reason. don't think they're, such, so they're so environmentally friendly as many people suggest they are. But I like electric cars. But, you know, there are I many. And again, it's government standing in the way of South Africa moving forward, forward quicker. For example, if you want to import an electric car to South Africa, you have to pay 25% import duty. Now, I mean, come on, if you want to have electric cars in South Africa, lower the import duty. And the reason why they have an import duty on cars is because they want to protect the local car industry in South Africa. Which I disagree with, but why should they be protected and other businesses should not be protected, for example. So, yes, but I do agree. I think we're a little bit behind, quite a lot behind the curve. I think electric cars is the, is the thing. It's quite expensive in South Africa. I would have bought an electric car already if it hasn't been for the fact that they are so expensive. But hopefully the price will come down eventually.
1: Great. And then, David, just before I let you go, a lot of people are asking a very interesting question about agriculture is our agriculture keeping up to date with the demands of the country with the demands yeah. of farmers on BEE etc are they able to cope and do we have the expertise
0: i can tell you and this is where i am at the moment you ask me where i am i'm in a, in the in the in free state at the moment i'm talking to a, a lot of farmers here we i can tell you we have of the best farmers in the world they are doing absolutely brilliantly i mean they are so productive I'm, I have no concern about food security in South Africa. In fact, I don't really care about food security. We produce a surplus of food, and the reason why is because we've got world-class farmers in South Africa. That is true. There's a huge political pressure on our farmers. That has been that has been a little bit less in recent months because I think there's so much infighting in the ANC. They've forgotten to look at other to pick a fight with other people. But uh, but the farmers in South Africa are really doing well. And maybe I can just make a comment about farming, but not only farming, at some other industry as well. Like, for example, medicine, education, and finance, those industries, those are the four top industries that I really do like. And that is that there are dramatic uh, technological changes happening there. And those four industries, I'm telling you, going to be the driving force be, behind world economic growth over the next couple of decades and so on. And the South African farmers are up there. They are some of the most efficient and effective and modern and sophisticated farmers in the world. And under very difficult circumstances, they're doing an absolutely wonderful, brilliant job. You know, it's
1: just interesting. I was just checking into a chap here who, last week who retired from the army quite recently. And he was just telling me that the the king of Morocco um, a couple of years ago approached farmers who were living on the Egyptian border where it's very, very difficult to farm and gave Israeli farmers huge swathes of land in Morocco and gave them capital to set up. And he says they've really changed the face of the economy over there. And that's just one thing that I wish that the pan-African movement would do would look at us African farmers and say, you guys, not only are you good farmers, but you love farming. It's a passion. Please come here, help us, teach us, let us learn so that we can make sure that Africa continues to be the breadbasket that it should be. Yeah.
0: Indeed, we have, the, we have the African free trade area to establish. There are a couple of uh, obstacles in doing more business with the rest of Africa, but I absolutely totally agree with you. We need to integrate the economies of Africa, and farming is an obvious way. We need to fix things like infrastructure. We need to fix uh, especially... Um, uh, um, uh, institutional infrastructure which is lacking in africa uh, skills is lacking in africa but we should do that without a doubt we need to integrate african economies and we need to grow the economies of africa not only in agriculture at all sort of levels
1: so you've got two minutes to go and i know you were very close to the, the whole rhino poaching thing you wrote a beautiful book about that but what's happening with farm killings is that a reality that's really a day-to-day concern for farmers, yeah. or was it sporadic?
0: No, no, that is really. You know, I walk, I, I, I'm currently, like I've said, I'm currently with farmers. I see farmers a lot. You know, and farmers walking around armed. I mean, I don't like that. It's, it's not. It's not a natural. It's not for 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 people to walk around with firearms. Uh, and they walk around with our firearms. They've got this. They've got security systems. They've got uh, all these fences and everything. And that's not the way that anybody should live. So that is without a doubt that is a that is a huge, huge, huge problem in South Africa. But it's not only for farms. South Africa is a violent place, and South Africa is a violent place for all sort of reasons. I mean, because we the the quality of the police. And it's no excuse if you're poor to steal or to kill somebody. But we're poor country. The economy is just not performing. And again, it's government mostly. But yes, I'm afraid farm killings is amazing.
1: Oh, David, you muted yourself then?
0: Yeah, I'm back. Sorry about that. My apologies. Okay.
1: Well, sorry to do this too. We are right out of time. But as always, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for just adding such flavor to the show with the vast experience and knowledge. And best of luck to you and your family. And just keep safe.
0: Thank you, Avi. Thank you very much for the invite.
1: Great. Craig, thanks for pushing the buttons. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you next week.